we're back with the chemo files. I'm Debbie Galland. This is one of the first things you think about when you get cancer. In fact, the first time I cried the week of my diagnosis was when I found out that I would indeed lose my hair. I'll never forget it. It was a Friday, 15 minutes before guests were about to arrive for a barbecue, when the doctor called to say that my cancer was triple negative, a more aggressive strain, and I would almost certainly need chemo. Losing your hair, instant membership into a club you'd rather not belong to, a club that marks you, even from a distance, as the stricken, or, best case, if you're with a friend who has a literary imagination, like my friend Liza, a character from a post-apocalyptic movie. Yeah, I like the whole, you know, you're leading the empire. You know, it's it's the last days, and they you were wearing your black, the black robes and standing yes. there very authoritatively. And uh, I know, but I think I okay, the Empress, the futuristic I mo- movie. But I think I have to lose like 20 pounds to really. Pull no, it you off. don't. Not with the black. No, you no 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 no. This is a more mature role. Of, <laughs> A more mature role. That's something I've had to slowly become accustomed to anyway, right? Losing my beauty year by year. But losing your hair all at once, even short grayish hair like mine, was like an express trip to ugly. I found myself that first weekend suddenly seeing my bald head in the bathroom mirror like some Halloween apparition. Sometimes I'd laugh, sometimes not. But there wasn't really the time or bandwidth to process it. In fact, it seemed kind of trivial, because my husband was in the hospital, scheduled for open-heart surgery the following week. Let's recap. In July, I got a diagnosis of breast cancer. In August, I had a double mastectomy. In September, I started chemotherapy. And then, plot twist, Warren was diagnosed with a major arterial blockage. Suddenly, there were two patients in the family. The morning of the surgery, my sister Margot took off from work to be with us. Here we are in pre-op, the three of us gathered around Dad, while anesthesiologists and nurses pop in and out. They told us there was less than a 2% chance they'd, you know, lose him on the table. Bypass surgery has become very common, but still... There's palpable fear. 2% is not zero. But our conversation doesn't match the gravity of the situation. How could it? With life and death looming over you, the last thing you want to talk about is life and death. And God bless Margot. When she's around, we're usually talking about her. Yeah, especially the rolling of the eyes part would be a very because I think it is incredibly funny that while we are waiting for Dad to go under and in the OR we're holding room, brainstorming. we're brainstorming Margot's web, web series. I don't know. The reason I signed up for this class was because last time I didn't get into the class because it was so popular, and I was like, well, I need to, I need to step on that, and I thought. That it would be an actual like you produce it and but and then and then in the class he was like I was he was like yeah I'm we're just writing this. What's we're the not, name of the class? Web series writing. Write <laughs> 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 your own web series. That's, that is that's very misleading. Next comes the big wait. 
Once the anesthesiologists cart Dad off, we are instructed to go into a family waiting area, where, after about half an hour, we finally meet the surgeon, Dr. Saunders. All week we had asked the nurses if we could meet him, but it hadn't been possible, since he works at a number of different hospitals. But every time we asked the staff about him, they all basically said the same thing. Dr. Saunders? He's the man. And when he arrives to greet us before surgery, he does seem like the man. Brief talker. Older. Probably in his 60s. White hair. Tall. John Wayne type. Classic surgeon. Sorry for the wait, he tells my mother. I had a pretty complicated case this morning. Not like your husband's. Walk in the park. And then, downstairs he goes to perform a triple bypass on my father's heart. When a surgery like this is successful, the relief doesn't come all at once. A few hours in, they called us from the OR to tell us Dad is off bypass. His heart is beating for itself. A little while later, Saunders comes back up to tell us surgery is finished and that Dad will be in the ICU shortly. At this point, Mom is making calls. Margot is informing Facebook. I hold off. I'm not celebrating anything until I see him. Of course... When I finally do see him, I don't feel much like celebrating. The image is jarring. Warren appears to be hooked up to a dozen different machines, and there is a breathing tube down his windpipe. When he wakes up, the tube will still be in. He'll feel like he's suffocating. They tell us we cannot stick around for this part. Go home. He'll be here in the morning. The feeling that our guy was still in there didn't come right away. Sure. Once the breathing tube was out, we knew he was out of the woods. But he was weak. Drugged up. Talking was difficult. I had not seen him like this before. The nurses hoped to get him out of bed and walking the first day after surgery. But no dice. I went back that evening to his ICU room to watch the Yankees and Astros. I did most of the talking. By the sixth inning, visiting hours were over but I didn't really need to be asked to leave. Relief came that next morning. It was Mom who bore witness to the return of his personality by playing audience to his first singing performance, less than 48 hours after the operation. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, an encyclopedia. Quitty Lydia, the queen of them all. She once swept an admiral clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia. Cancer, meanwhile, wasn't content to take a complete backseat. Warren was on the upswing, but I was also exhausted. And I was feeling guilty about work, at least about how I was going to fill out the inevitable timesheets. The day of the surgery, well... I knew I wouldn't be able to do anything productive, so what would I declare that? Vacation? The next day, I was exhausted, so sick leave? So finally, on Friday of that week, the week of Warren's surgery, I decided to muscle down and get back to work. Enough lollygagging. It was time to get things done. I woke up, ticked off an elaborate to-do list, shot off some emails. Then I raced to the hospital to visit Warren, making it ten minutes before a conference call with the West Coast. That was going fine, but when a surgeon came in to talk to another family, 
I decided to give them some space. I walked out into the hall, still talking on the phone, and realized I felt winded. I went home, called Noel, and he insisted I go to the ER right away to check out the one really bad thing it could be, a pulmonary embolism. Three hours later, I was cleared to go home. But over that weekend, I felt defeated. I'd been so proud of my good attitude, so sure my positive thinking was going to help me overcome this cancer. And now I just felt like a mess. I was especially pissed that it hadn't even occurred to me to tape my time in the ER. I started thinking, for the first time, of really using all my medical leave and taking some real time off, maybe taking off all the way through the end of chemo in January. This idea started permeating my waking hours. I spent the weekend thinking about it, talking to my friends, and it was finally a call to my dad that convinced me, yes, I needed some time off. I called my boss on Monday, and he suggested a compromise, take three weeks of sick leave and then reassess. And that was huge. Suddenly, I wasn't tied to my emails and juggling conference calls. I could just be. Huge breath. Meanwhile, that Saturday, the day after my ER visit, big news, Warren was coming home. By this time, he was eating, walking a little, and talking baseball. At bat was clearly the, uh, the David Wright at bat. You know, but he is, I did see him in the first inning, and, he is awesome. David Wright, he's just, oh, come in. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. Hey. Oh, look who's He's here. discharged. You don't even I'm have free. to take his vitals. You are? No, I'm, yeah. taking, I'm taking my vitals home with me. Baseball talk has always been a big part of our house. Since I was in Little League, the conversation between me and my father has always been liable to slide into a comfortable chat about wins above replacement or the home plate collision rule with my mother protesting. Not of general interest. There's some teams that when one of them gets a hit, we talk about it so mystically, like they're yes. rallying off that energy. Right. What is it that like makes them all hit in bunches? For all we know, their wives have their periods at the same time too. But lately, baseball talk has offered us something exceptional, non-hospital talk. These last few weeks have been filled with chemo and cardio talk, reassurances from hospital staff, friends and family calling to ask about my parents' health. But baseball talk is just... baseball talk. It's perennial. What's not perennial is seeing my team, the Mets, make a playoff run. This is exciting. And with Chicago in the mix as well, Mom, the loyal daughter of a diehard Cubs fan, who has waited his entire life to see his team win a World Series, no longer protests. In fact, she's watching every single game with us. One strike away! Yes! Two nights later, the Mets beat the Dodgers in five. With two strikes on the Dodgers' final batter, Grandpa called to congratulate me. He's not even waiting. He's not even waiting. Yes! So this is life at home now. The new normal. With dad recovering from surgery and mom taking off work, it's three adults living at home, full time. 
Our house, which used to feel so spacious, is beginning to run a little smaller. Lots of baseball talk. And lots of groceries. So I don't get no, to eat. No, 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 no. So I'll have a bite and then follow you. Mmm. So this is the the last of the meals before the next chemo. Not the nice, the penultimate meal before the last chemo. No, it's <laughs> cut. <laughs> this, is a d- this is the day before my next chemo. And so it's the last day in which I'm willing to do things like eat vegetables for about four days. Mm-hmm. And so, Noah made me a nice salad. Three lunches going on. This is the first time we've had to share the, the kitchen and sort of so much. Uh, and you have so many of our meals here. Right, right. And, and figure out what, our, what our, um, our pantry, you know, supplies, what are our standard things. Right. And, we're and mine changes all the time. Right. And we're embarking on diet changes for dad. Right. Uh, well, my here's my goal. My goal is to, um, on the days when I feel good, and also particularly when I'm done the chemo, is to become a superb heart-healthy chef so that I'm making him meals and even sending him to work with meals that he will love and not feel deprived. Send dad to work with lunch? Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we got that on tape. <laughs> <laughs> I will at least say that's my intention. (laughs) (laughs) In yoga, we talk a lot about intentions. Another problem. Warren wasn't taking well to me taking care of him. In fact, we had to negotiate terms of patient etiquette. Since I've gotten back, and I got back less than 24 hours ago, and I've already been accused of being the world's worst patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And Debbie has to understand, and she will, no doubt that she will, but has to understand that there are certain times that I will not um, inconvenience her just because having her do a thing for me would be a tiny bit marginally more inconvenient for me to do than for her to do. The other thing is, and I don't think that you know this is going to be a problem, but I don't feel like reporting or doing play-by-play of every grunt and groan. I'm just, sometimes I'm just going to say, and I'm not going to describe how I'm feeling. It's just what what I'm saying. With Warren denying me the role of Florence Nightingale, I decided to do something I hadn't had time for between work, chemo, and visiting the hospital for 12 days straight, taking care of myself. And that actually meant, well, girl stuff. Margo was home, and we went to a cheap wig store down the street. (laughs) Unlike the place where we'd picked up my official wig, a place licensed to deal with chemo patients, this wig shop was fun. We could actually play, and the wigs were about one-tenth of the price. I was just thinking about, like, something really goofy, like maybe that one up there. Actually, I think, look at me. Mm -hmm. I think you could do some stuff with this. This is actually really nice. And it makes you look younger. As it happens, I had a pair of oversized sunglasses that I tried on with the wig. I decided then that big statement glasses were exactly what I needed. Very big. Iris Apfel big. If you don't know Iris Apfel, a 94-year-old fashion icon and subject of a new documentary, you might just want to put this on pause now and go Google her. Anyway, this was the idea I had in my head when I entered Eye Candy Opticians in Montclair. My optician, Mark Zook, 
listening to my clues, started searching through his 70s drawer. Oh boy, you got some. <laughs> but irises are the real circular. Well, I don't know. I know, hey, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm trying best I know, I know, I know. That might do it though. I mean, that's, that's kind of the look. That's a look. Look at that. That's real 70s, mm -hmm. you know. What I wanted you to do is go on the computer and look up Iris Apfelt just to see. And just see what it Yeah, like. just to see. But and while you're at it, when you take a look at Kim Jong-un. you got to understand that the way I feel as a woman, I, I am putting everything on Liza Minnelli style mm -hmm. because I feel so faded. In the end, we didn't go with glasses left over from the set of The Golden Girls, but I found some over-the-top sunglasses with big black frames. Mark popped out the tinted lenses. I tried them on. And my friend Sima, who happened to be in the store, gave them her benediction. I like those because your personality can carry them off. They're different and they're interesting. I do think too. Mark, you I won't see them anywhere else, probably. I think I like these. It's a statement. All right, that's cool too. It's right on your eyebrows. Is that you know good? what I mean? Which is kind of good. Yeah, right. Because if I lose my eyebrows, it's kind of good. Right. I like that too. I think it's a little bit more along the lines of what you were looking for a little, originally. A little crazy. A little crazy, but not like that. Not like 70s retro crazy. And not like a 90-year-old woman, <laughs> like wearing gigantic round glasses. Excuse me, but my mother came in specifically asking to be made to look like a 90-year-old woman. <laughs> but look at how good she looks as a 90-year-old. You're a stunning 90. Add to these giddy little pleasures the luxury my body truly craved, breathing. This came in the form of a private yoga lesson from my teacher, Carol Porter. So, all right, so re-release the belly if it's tight and allow the inhale to gently, without pushing or any straining whatsoever, just let the belly gently expand and contract with your breath. This feels wonderful. Now bring your attention gently if you're ready to move on to any emotional feelings you're having at this moment without getting caught up in the storyline of the feelings. Just locate the feeling in the body And may this practice gently nourish you and bring you more and more and more health and happiness. Namaste. Carol's visit happened to fall on the three-month anniversary of my diagnosis. And as I lay on the yoga mat, breathing deeply, I realized that for all that time, my body had been hostage to the medical industrial complex. Now it felt I was beginning to get it back. The act of gently and fully inhaling and exhaling felt like a deep awakening. With heart disease defeated and surgery completed and lots of rest at home to come ahead. Exhaustion simply ties you to the bed. Don't mope or give up hope, just turn the game on instead. We're talking baseball to fill the empty hours, talking baseball.
baseball Before you hit the showers Be grateful no one cut into your chest You hate to lose, but there are worse things to digest Especially cancer Chemo and the rest This week, a big thanks to the medical industrial complex, especially Dr. Saunders, who rode in on his white horse and saved my husband's life. Thanks, too, to Dr. Tasima, the internist, who greeted us every day in the hospital with a big smile and even checked on me in the ER. And to Sally Malik, Director of Public Relations and Marketing for St. Barnabas, who came to visit me during my most recent infusion. Shout out to Margot for making the time fly and pre-op, and to all the family and friends who called, visited, and sent cards or flowers. And apologies to Terry Cashman, composer of the song Talkin' Baseball. That's my co-producer, Noah, on the ukulele, playing a very special Chemo Files rendition of Cashman's baseball classic. And of course, to patient number two, who still holds the microphone whenever we're ready to record, and whom we're terrifically happy to have home. Thanks for listening to The Chemo Files. We'll be back.